Grab your Bibles and let's turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3. I want you to go to verse 21. Romans 3.21, today is really the second part of a message that we began last Sunday. Verses 21 to 26 in chapter 3 are are so critical to the gospel message, and they really ought to be taught together, but last week there was so much to verses 21 to 24 that I I cut it off for your sake, otherwise we would have been here all day, Uh, but I cut it off because I didn't want to bite off more than I could chew in that one Sunday, so today we're going to finish this teaching by looking closely at verses 25 to 26. But first, let's read again the verses that we covered last Sunday. That will set the context and the flow for what Paul is trying to say. So hear the word of the Lord, Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now, we talked about how important those words are, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So that's a, that's a packed set of verses there. But let me try to summarize and recap what we learned last time. Every human being born on this earth sins against God and his fellow man. Amen? We know that to be true about ourselves and about others. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. In other words, short of being able to reach and obtain eternal life within our own power. The fact is, we've all incurred a debt for sin. It's a debt that we can't pay off. It's a debt that we can't work off. In fact, we don't even have the currency necessary to somehow atone for our own shortcomings. So here was the first big idea that came from last Sunday. In order for us to be saved... We have to obtain somehow what we call an alien righteousness. In other words, a righteousness that doesn't come from within us, but a righteousness that comes from the outside of us. In fact, what we need is God's righteousness. And that was the good news that Paul reported here in verse 21. Now he says, this righteousness from God has been revealed to us. And it comes to us apart from the law because we found out that the law doesn't have the power to save anyone. The power of the law is to reveal sin to us so that we become aware of sin and our own shortcomings. But it never had the power to save. But this righteousness that now comes apart from the law comes in the person of Jesus Christ and we sinners, sinners, get that, filthy, dirty sinners, rebellious sinners can now lay hold of this righteousness in Christ by believing, by placing our faith and trust in him alone. And then came the second big idea from last Sunday. You see these four essential theological concepts in verse 24. When the sinner lays hold of the righteousness of God in Christ, he, first of all, is instantly justified by God. Big word, important word. Paul's going to use it throughout the book of Romans, so get used to it. We are justified by God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we are practically made righteous because we continue to live in these sin-riddled bodies. We are declared righteous by God. God declares that we are righteous in his sight. It's a legal declaration. In Christ, you are covered by him and declared to be righteous. Guys, that is amazing news, is it not? And what God has declared, he will never take back. We're justified in his sight. And notice that it comes not by our obedience to the law, 
Not by any good works that we can do. Not by anything inherently good within us. It says here it comes as a, as a gift, freely given by his grace. That means we add nothing to it. It comes from him. And finally, the last thing that Paul says in verse uh, 24 is that it results in us being redeemed. And we looked at what that word means. It means we've been purchased. We've been bought back or redeemed, so to speak. Redemption refers to that ransom price that we just sang about. The ransom price that Christ paid for our sins. So those verses are chock full, are they not? Tons of great lessons in there. Now, here's the, guys, here is the, here's the danger that we fall into. In a church like ours that is serious about God's word, conservative, Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church, we can all read those verses and just nod our heads because we've heard it before. It's so easy to get tainted by that, to say, oh, really again with the gospel? As if we can get tired of it, right? We just, we just nod our heads. But I want you to take a step back for a second and try to pretend that you were part of the audience in Rome that was receiving this letter in the first century and you don't have all that other stuff in your life where you've heard this so many times. Honestly, if you think about those four verses we just read, don't they raise some questions? If you're hearing this maybe for the first time or you're a, you're a baby believer in this Roman church in the first century, it raises some questions. And the biggest question that those verses raises is this one, and it's a challenging one. How can a holy God declare guilty sinners righteous and still maintain his integrity and justice? How can a God who is holy and righteous declare you or me righteous in his sight and still maintain his integrity, his consistency, and his justice. Now, as we've already seen before in the book of Romans, Paul is really good at anticipating the objections that might come from his audience. And so he does that here. In verses 25 and 26, he's going to explain exactly how that's possible. Paul is going to take us beyond these important theological terms, these big words like justification, redemption, and he's going to take us right into the heart of what the cross means. So, let's look at verses 25 and 26. Actually, go back to the very end of verse 24, because this gives us the object of the statement. Christ Jesus, he says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, before we dig into this, there's really an interesting story that connects church history with these particular verses. Some of you guys may have heard of a man named William Cowper. He was a brilliant uh, poet and hymn writer, part of the evangelical movement that was taking place in England back in the 18th century. Uh, Cowper is often linked with uh, John Newton, who wrote the, the great hymn Amazing Grace, because both of them were involved in the anti-slavery movement, the abolitionist movement in England in that day. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr. was known to quote poetry from William Cowper in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. But Cowper's life is interesting because it was anything but easy. When he was 28 years old, prior to his, his conversion, he had such a mental breakdown that three times he tried to commit suicide unsuccessfully. And he was absolutely convinced that he was damned, that he was beyond hope, and he simply deserved to die. 
He was so crazy in his mind that in uh, four years later, he was committed to a place called St. Albans Sanatorium. Okay, that's the nut house. That's the funny farm. He was sent to an insane asylum. And there was a doctor there, a 58-year-old doctor named Nathaniel Cotton, and Cowper fell under his, his particular uh, service. And by God's design, Dr. Cotton was an evangelical believer and a lover of the gospel. And for six months, Dr. Cotton held out the hope of the gospel to William Cowper. And yet over and over again, he said, look, you're wasting your time on me. I am damned and beyond hope. Well, Dr. Cotton didn't give up on him. Six months later, six months into his stay in the funny farm, William Cowper found a Bible, not by accident, lying on a bench just outside in the garden. And according to his autobiography, he first opened the Gospel of John, and he went to chapter 11, and this is what he wrote in his autobiography. In chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, he said, I saw so much benevolence, so much mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct that for the first time I felt a ray of hope. So the Gospel of John gave him some hope that maybe he wasn't damned forever, but then when he finished the Gospel of John, he turned to the book of Romans. And he came upon the verse that we just read, Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25, and this became the turning point of his life. Here's what he wrote about that verse. Immediately I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, he writes, I believed. This was his conversion experience, Romans 3.25. Two years after being committed as this suicidal patient, two years, Cowper left St. Albans and lived and ministered the gospel for 35 more years. Now, interestingly, he didn't do it without bouts of depression. He continued to struggle in his mind with so many things, but also with great fruit for the kingdom. He wrote a number of famous hymns, including one called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Listen to the lyrics that he wrote. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile is he, Wash all my sins away. Beautiful lyrics. Guys, this is the type of story that you see over and over again in church history connected to the book of Romans. We've looked at some of them already, how Augustine was impacted by Romans, how Luther, John Wesley, and now William Cowper, even this verse was impacted by the power of Paul's words in the book of Romans. Friends, don't brush over these six verses. I mentioned last week that if, if, you're, if you're being challenged right now to memorize scripture, here's a great place to start. Romans 3, 21 to 26. They're powerful verses that speak to the glory of the gospel and the glory of the cross that we just sang about. Now, there's two parts to the rest of the message. Number one, what we want to talk about first of all is the problem that's raised by verses 21 to 24. And I sort of hinted at it last week. And secondly, we want to look at how God answers that problem in verses 25 to 26. So let me start with the problem. I put it up on the screen so you could see it, but I'm just going to say it, which means you've got to focus your minds. Are we ready? Back in elementary school, they would say, put on your thinking caps, right? And everybody would do this, okay? So no visuals. Ah, here we go. Here's, here's the problem. On the surface, after reading verses 21 to 24, there appears to be a miscarriage of justice in Paul's gospel. 
Can you say that? Can you say that in church? On the surface, there appears to be a miscarriage of justice. Think about this for a second. Proverbs 17 says this. Listen. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. But Paul just said that that's exactly what God does. He justifies the wicked. Romans 4, 5 is going to repeat that same truth. He justifies the ungodly. So the question is, how does God get away with this? It's an important question. How is this not a contradiction in his thinking? How is this not an injustice that God would justify the wicked? Again, back in verse 23, Paul stated the obvious. He said, we all fall short of God's glory. And honestly, that's a, that's a, those words don't even, don't even describe what we really do. It's not like, we, oh, we just barely fell short, right? Or we, we just barely missed the mark. The fact is, guys, we regularly trample on God's glory. We do. We trample on God's glory on a regular basis. We don't, we don't treasure him as we should. I mean, honestly, should we not treasure him beyond all things? And yet we don't. We don't. We take our salvation for granted day to day. We grow lukewarm in our spiritual lives. We so easily default. We just saying, come thou found, prone to wandering. Lord, I feel it. We're prone to wander. And when we wander, where do we wander to? Ourselves, our own needs, our own desires. We trust in ourselves and we, we trample on his glory. Now, maybe you don't want to think of it that way because, but in my heart, I love God. But the fact is, in a practical sense, we're, we're committing treason against him. We're walking away from him. We're trusting in ourselves. We're seeking after idols to meet our needs and desires. Frankly, we dishonor the Lord of the universe. And I'm talking about believers. We still do that, don't we, on occasion, until God brings us back. What about unbelievers? Rebellious. The extent that they trample on his glory is even hard to measure. And yet, the truth is that God still justifies us freely. Does that seem righteous to you? Think about that for a second. Does that seem righteous to you that that God would justify people who trample his glory all the time? Try to enter into this in a practical way. Think of the story of David David and Bathsheba for a second. In fact, maybe picture yourself. Maybe you've never tried to do this. Picture yourself as either the father or the mother of Bathsheba. Okay, we sort of know the story, right? She's taking a bath one night, and the king, who should be on the battlefield, is instead idly walking around his palace, and he sees her, and he wants her, and he gets her, because he's the king, right? And, and I won't get graphic, we know the story from there. There's adultery, and there's murder, as David tries to cover up his sexual sin. And God's prophet in that day, Nathan, comes to David, and what does he do? He tells him a story. Is this not one of the great setups in all of Scripture? Second Samuel 12. Tells him this, this little parable about this wealthy man who has all kinds of flocks, lambs and sheep and all these animals, and then there's the poor man who has how many lambs? One. One precious little lamb. But the wealthy man steals the one lamb from the poor man. And how does David react to that little parable? He's irate. Are you kidding me? That man deserves what? Deserves to die. And that's the setup, right? What does Nathan say? David, you are that man. Nathan knows the whole story. Nathan knows exactly what David has done. He says, you have despised the commandment of the Lord and done evil in his sight. And how does David respond? No defensiveness, right? He says what? I've sinned against the Lord. 
Great response, right? That's the right response. That's the way we should all respond when we're caught in sin. When a brother or sister corrects us, that's all, I've sinned against the Lord. No defensiveness. But still, you have to admit, David had trampled on God's glory, hadn't he? He's the king of Israel, and he had brought great dishonor to the name of Yahweh. Here's the point. What does Nathan have to say? After David humbles himself, Nathan says, The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Just like that. Just like that, it's gone. Now again, suppose you're the father or the mother of Bathsheba or Uriah. You find out that just like that, God has forgiven David. So he's taken advantage of my daughter. He's killed my son. And now you're telling me that it's just over? He's forgiven? He's done? He's justified? Can you, can you put yourself in those sandals and say, man, I would understand a sense of anger and injustice in that. In fact, any human judge who would just say, oh, you're forgiven, and led an adulterer off or a murderer off without any type of of, of, of punishment just to say you're justified, just let him off. That type of human judge should be impeached from the bench, right? You see the problem? The appearance of a problem in this idea that God can justify the wicked? That's just part of the problem. There's more. Look at the end of verse 25. In Romans 3, it says, In the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. The NIV puts it this way. God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. All those sins in the Old Testament period, before the incarnation of Christ, unpunished, passed over. Paul's telling us that for all these centuries, God was passing over the sins of man. From from Noah's day to the first century when Christ came, it appears on the surface that man was able to sin with impunity. At least that's what the, the critics of Yahweh would say, right? Wouldn't that open up God's righteous reputation to accusation and slander? You just passed over them? If you think about it, the entire Old Testament sacrificial system called into question the justice and righteousness of God. Why do, you say, why do I say that? It's very simple. In Hebrews 10.4, the Bible says, The blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sins. And yet that's what the entire Old Testament sacrificial system was built on, right? Have you ever thought this through? On the sacrifice of blood, uh, uh, blood of, of bulls and goats and other animals. Understand in that verse, the author of Hebrews isn't saying that the blood of bulls and goats can't forgive sins now in the New Testament era, but it could in the Old Testament era. He's saying the blood of animals has never had the power to atone for human sin. So this is the problem. Oh, hey, look at that. Nice job, Justin. So here's the problem that we see in 21 to 24. Three things. First of all, God justifies the wicked, people who trample on his glory. That doesn't seem right. Secondly, he's passed over all these Old Testament sins. And third, he set up a system whereby these animals were sacrificed, but they could never atone for human sin. So there's a conundrum here. That's that's my word of the week, by the way. Conundrum, challenge, puzzle. How do we figure this out? Listen, what would be the most efficient way for God to protect his glory and his justice? The most efficient way to show the world that he's serious about sin, you know what it would have been? To send all of us to hell. Boom. Done. Every one of us deserves it, so that's the most efficient way to do it. Everybody's cast into hell. God's glory is maintained. His justice is maintained. But 
God purposed to do otherwise, didn't he? See, when you start to take the gospel for granted, just, just point that out to your own heart. He could have done this, but he's done that. And you're part of that. He purposed to save you. He willed to save you, to justify sinners like you and like me. So that's the problem. If I was a critic of Yahweh, if I was an objector, I'd point to these things and say, well, you don't look just, Lord. Now, you know I'm pulling your string, right? There's, <laughs> there's an answer. You're all like, what's he saying? <laughs> My faith is rocked. No, the answer is coming in verses 25 and 26. I hinted at this last Sunday, but now we have a chance to go deeper. Look at verse, again, the end of verse 24 the answer is very simple. Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly, is a propitiation in his blood. There's the answer. The Father puts forth his Son as a propitiation for sin. Get this. God the Father intentionally, by eternal decree and sovereign plan, put his Son forward and offered him to the world as a propitiation for sin. And he did it in public for all to see, so that there'd be Roman witnesses and Jewish witnesses, and he says, look, this is the propitiation for sin, and this is God responding to his critics. This is how God responds to his critics. Come back to that in a second. Let's make sure we do some definition stuff, right? What is propitiation? It's one of those big theological words that either intimidates people or makes people run away from you when you say it. Uh, Try dropping this word at a party. You will clear the room. I mean, nerd alert. Theological nerd alert. You will clear the room. Propitiation, folks, speaks of turning away wrath. Propitiation speaks of turning away wrath, appeasing or satisfying the Lord. Jesus was a wrath satisfying sacrifice. You want to write something down from this sermon? Write that down. Jesus was a wrath-satisfying sacrifice on the cross. You're going to see this word if you look at it three other times in the New Testament, propitiation. Maybe the most important one comes from Hebrews chapter 2. It's on the screen. It says, Therefore he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things. Meaning he had to take on flesh in a human nature to be made like us. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Remember, what does a high priest do? He stands between God and the people. He represents the people to God and brings atoning sacrifice. Jesus is our great high priest. Only he brings much better sacrifices than animals, right? He brings his own blood. Once for all, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what he did, one time for all. Now, interestingly, propitiation is is an ancient concept, something we have in common with other world religions. In fact, some very primitive pagan religions. In various times and places, to propitiate a god meant to offer a sacrifice that would turn away that god's wrath. And in pagan religion, if you know anything about like the ancient Babylonians or the Egyptians or, or, or any of these ancient peoples, you always wanted to stay on the good side of the gods because they could make your life miserable or good. So you always were preemptively coming with all kinds of sacrifices to try to keep them happy. And if there was a, there was a lack of rain or there was a, an attacking army or there was disease that had come upon the land, well, we got to bring some more sacrifices to keep this God happy or else he's going to pull out his smite button. 
right? He's going to zap us. So we have to keep doing this, right? Uh, Picture the proverbial situation where there's this primitive tribe of people, and they've got the volcano god. And the volcano's starting to erupt. So what do we do? We start tossing in innocent victims (laughs) until the volcano stops bubbling. But that's the same concept of propitiation. Now, you might be saying, now, Jeff, you're insulting my faith. We, We don't have any connection with that type of pagan religion. Now, yes and no. Yes, propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath, is an essential tenet of our faith, but there's very huge differences between what I described in primitive religion and what biblical propitiation is. First of all, in pagan propitiation, the gods needed to be propitiated because they were grumpy and unpredictable. In fact, the gods of most pagan religions act like really spoiled brat people, don't they? So we got to keep them happy. They don't care much about human beings except when something makes them angry and then comes that, that smite button, right? And it's up to humans to do the propitiating, to make amends for whatever they think has angered the God. So, so things aren't going well, we scramble around, we try to find something that they're going to like and we throw it in. That is not biblical propitiation, is it? It's very different. Let me give you three different reasons, or three reasons why biblical propitiation is different. Why does God require propitiation? Not because he's grumpy. Not because he's unpredictable, but because he's holy and he always maintains his justice. That's why. Secondly, who carries out biblical propitiation? Not us. We don't scramble to run around and go, oh, what is Yahweh going to like to make him happy? God himself tells us what he will accept as a sacrifice. And third, what kind of sacrifice is required? Not a bribe. Not some temporary gift just to make him happy. God himself provides the very sacrifice he says he will accept in the person of his son. That's very, very different, right? So propitiation is the appeasing or the satisfaction of wrath, but it's very different from pagan religion. Now, coming back to my main point, it's the propitiation that is precisely how God is vindicated in justifying sinners. This is how he is vindicated. His gracious free gift in justifying you and I is righteous Here's why. Because he didn't just sweep sin under the rug. He didn't say, well, I'm not going to look at this, or I'm going to ignore this, or you know what? Uh, I'm just going to pretend this never happened. He didn't sweep it under the rug at all, did he? He paid the highest cost imaginable for every sin of humanity. And he did so by the blood of his own son. God the Father put God the Son on the cross to pay the highest cost imaginable. He didn't just overlook it. So, so don't, don't come up here and tell me that God isn't just, that he didn't, he didn't deal with sin. Oh, he did. He paid the highest price that you can imagine. And by that costly sacrifice, God's wrath is satisfied. That's why we sang the song earlier, the glory of the cross. You say, well, man, that cross is bloody. It's messy, right? Why would we sing about an execution instrument? So awful like a cross. Because that's where God's wrath was satisfied. That's where God vindicated himself publicly and said, no, I haven't ignored sin. I've paid the highest cost imaginable. And he says, look, it says, Paul says in verse 25, he says, this was to demonstrate righteousness. He says it himself. This was to demonstrate righteousness. What's the this? The propitiation. God's public display of his son on the cross was decreed, planned, and carried out for that very purpose to demonstrate his righteousness. 
See, God had decreed and planned to save his elect, right? Before the foundation of the world, he had decreed to save his elect. And to accomplish that, he knew he would have to justify wicked people. That's us. And so in order to save his elect and to maintain his righteousness, well, God the Son would have to go. And he would have to empty himself and take on the form of a bondservant. He would have to be made in the likeness of men. He would have to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a Roman cross. And that, Paul says, that demonstrates God's righteousness. That demonstrates his justice. This is God answering his critics. The death of Christ was not only a wrath-satisfying sacrifice for sinners, it was the public vindication of God's honor and glory. It all happens right there. Did we say last week the cross is the center point of human history? It all happens right there. It's a beautiful picture. And so God orchestrated the death of his son to show the world that he wasn't scorning the life of Uriah. He wasn't belittling the purity of Bathsheba. He wasn't ignoring David's sin at all. He purposed to pay it all in his son. You say, Jeff, why do we keep singing about the cross? Why do we keep singing about this substitutionary atonement? Why do we keep singing These songs, folks, here it is. This is why God's wrath is satisfied and the highest possible cost was paid. Do you see it? Do you see what it costs for God to be both merciful and righteous in forgiving people like David and you and me? How much it costs? What about the Old Testament sacrificial system? Was God somehow unjust in passing over the sins from the Old Testament period? Of course not. Those animal sacrifices had a very real purpose to foreshadow the coming of a much greater sacrifice. This is what Hebrews describes, right? You've got the the blood of animals, but now comes the real propitiating blood in God the Son. In other words, God's mercy in the past was grounded in the future offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? God's mercy in the past was grounded in the future offering of God the Son. And so his work on the cross is the center point of all human history. It flows in both directions, doesn't it? It flows backwards to the Old Testament saints, and now it flows 2,000 years forward in your life and mine. It's the center point of all human history, the cross, the glory of the cross. So we have the problem, the appearance of a problem, and we have God's answer, God's vindication of his glory and honor. Let me close our time by making this practical. Look at verse 26. Let's get practical here. Verse 26 says, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be, here's the key phrase, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, Jesus was presented as evidence of God's righteousness so all the world would understand these two things. Number one, that God is just. And number two, he is the only one qualified to justify the wicked. He's he's both just and the justifier. Which sinners will he justify? Is that not the key question? Which sinners? Paul says it. Those who have faith in Jesus, the propitiation for their sins. Those are the sinners. So catch the two sides of that coin here. Simultaneously, God is both a righteous judge and a merciful father to those who put their faith in God the Son. Those two things can be true at the same time. Why? Because of the cross. Because of the propitiation. 
our sins are imputed to Jesus, and the righteous judge pours out his wrath on Jesus. At the same time, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us, and the merciful Father declares us righteous in his sight. That's that double imputation we talked about last week. Jesus gets all our sin, we get all his righteousness. God can be both merciful Father and righteous judge. Don't you love the rationality of the gospel? This is what blew me away on Friday when I, I'm like, this is so beautiful, and it, it, it fits so well together. It's so ra- People want to say, you have blind faith. No, we don't. We have an incredibly rational gospel that God has purposed and planned from the foundation of the world, and here it is in all of its glory. This is the glory of the gospel, that God is merciful towards filthy sinners, and still his justice and righteousness are maintained in Christ. That is why we continually praise his name. Amen? The one who has faith in Jesus, Paul says. As we sit here this morning, you should know that God's provision of justification and grace and redemption and propitiation, all those big terms that we used, all those things are laid hold of only one way, by faith alone. We talk about, look, it's great that God did these things and that all these things are out there. If they're not appropriated, then what's the value to you? And to me, if they're not laid hold of and made personal for us, have you really trusted, really trusted, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Head and heart, we talked about it last Sunday. Going back to our question, how will you boldly and confidently stand before Almighty God on the day of judgment? I challenged you with that question last Sunday. How will you boldly and confidently stand before him? The answer is only by faith in the one who took your punishment. Only, only by faith in the one who covers you. Only by faith in the one who made propitiation for your sins. So ultimately, guys, that is the most important question that we can ask based on these two Sundays. Have you truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone? Alone. You haven't added anything to it. It's not grace plus anything, is it? If you've added stuff to it, you've nullified grace. Christ alone. If not, if you're trusting in anything else, even in part, Paul has said it, on the day of judgment, you are going to fall short of his glory. But if you have trusted in him, then not only will you stand confidently on the day of judgment, you will stand confidently today. Today. Even as the world spins around. Even as things look absolutely crazy. You will be like a rock in a swift moving stream. If you've trusted in Christ alone. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to make some comments about what happened in our country yesterday. Now, you know at Oak Hill, we don't chase the news. This is not what we do. But sometimes things happen in this country. And I, I was at Hume Lake all day yesterday, and I was out of Wi-Fi range. And, you know, you, you come down from the hill, and all of a sudden, bing, 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 here come all your text messages. One of them was from Grant saying, hey, have you seen what's happened in the news? We should probably talk about this. And I was like, I have no idea. And suddenly I, there I was looking at these websites and, and trying to get videos and trying to find out what had happened. And it was hard to fathom, wasn't it? So let's talk about this briefly, especially as it relates to what I just said about us being able to stand confidently in the midst of craziness. The world is growing more hateful every day, isn't it? The images that I saw on the news yesterday, honestly... Part of me says, hard to imagine, hard to fathom that that's happening 
in this country. But at the same time, if you look at what's been going on in the last 10 years, it's not that surprising, is it? Hate is growing. Our country is being balkanized right now, tribalized, and is being torn apart. There is hatred and violence everywhere. The neo-Nazis and the white supremacists on one side, the anarchists and the socialists on the other, hatred and violence, and things are going this direction. We're being polarized, balkanized into various tribes. Guys, I expect the threats and the rhetoric to get even louder and more dangerous in the coming days and weeks. Already this morning it's happened. Fingers are being pointed. Terrible things are being said. I expect to see progressives on both sides of the fence using yesterday's shameful, shameful events to further tear America into two. To drive us towards fascism and intolerance. And you should know there are powerful people with a lot of money that are working behind the scenes in government and the media all over the place to try to foment civil unrest, to try to foment division in our country. That's what's going on. And we know the spiritual forces that work in them, do we not? So we see what's going on because we read Scripture. We don't know exactly what the fallout's going to be for us as Christians. God knows, but I can tell you a couple things. I went back to Matthew 24 late last night, and I said, Lord, I need to know what's going on here. And, and, and I'm not one to set dates or to say, well, this is definitely this or that. But there's four principles in Matthew 24 that I read. Number one, as rebellion against God increases, and that's happened in our country, obviously, the love of people will grow cold. Jesus says that. As lawlessness increases, the love of people will grow cold. Number two, false prophets and false leaders will arise and deceive most of the people. What's right will be wrong. What's wrong will be right. And, and will be led by these, these false leaders. Number three, ultimately Christians are going to suffer persecution. And because of it, many will fall away, Jesus says. And lastly, here's the key. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Did you hear that? The one who stands in that stream as the current's going by and says, I trust in Christ alone and his sovereign hand, he will be saved. So my exhortation for us today in light of yesterday's chaos is twofold. Number one, don't be surprised by it. Don't be rocked by it. I know it's hard to watch on TV. You say, I can't believe that's my country. I can't believe those people are saying that. Don't be surprised by the sinfulness of man, ever. It's going to get worse. So don't let it rock you. Number two, consider carefully how you'll respond. Carefully how you'll respond. In conversations with unbelievers, be careful. In your social media posts, be careful. How can you be a peacemaker in the midst of all this? How can you be a peacemaker? How can you bring the gospel of grace into your interactions? How can you honor those and respect those who have a different opinion than you without blasting them and acting like the rest of the world? How can you turn away wrath with a kind word? Guys, this is a time for us to represent Jesus well in the way we respond in the public sphere. So think carefully this week and the weeks to come on how you respond. In fact, rethink it. And then rethink it again before you respond. And maybe ask somebody else to look at it and say, am I responding well here? Am I responding in a gracious way that Jesus would approve of? And then in your heart, this is a great time for prayer and reflection, isn't it? A great time for all of us to make sure that in our hearts and minds, we're being driven by gospel principles and not political, worldly principles. This stuff matters.
We have to show the way, right? The world is not going to fix its own problems. Did you know that? It's only going to get worse. What's the hope of the world? The local church, Christians like you and I, it's the hope of the world. We need to set the example. Do you really trust in Christ alone? If so, you can stand with confidence, even in the midst of all of this craziness, craziness, because you know that God is sovereign, you know that he is good and faithful, and you know who you serve. Amen? Let's pray.